I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, listeners. Elise here. Corey and I are so excited to be bringing you this bonus end-of-year episode where we are talking with Professor Arthur W. Frank about his new book from Oxford University Press, King Lear, a My Reading Series title. As part of the My Reading Series, King Lear is a personal meditation on a great literary work. Arthur Frank brings a career of studying illness experience and suffering to consider how King Lear can aid people whose lives need help. Reading King Lear leads Frank to both an encounter with his own old age and a source of consolation companionship in his future. This book does not try to minimize vulnerabilities, but it shows what is fully human and thus shared in suffering. The book introduces readers to King Lear, and it invites those who know the play to a new consideration for its ability to affect people's lives. Arthur Frank spent his career teaching at the University of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, he has lectured internationally, holding visiting professorships in England and Australia. 
His work has focused on the experience of serious illness, beginning with his memoir, At the Will of the Body, and his most cited work, The Wounded Storyteller. He is an elected member of the Royal Society of Canada and a recipient of the Career Achievement Award from the Canadian Bioethics Society. Oxford University Press's My Reading series invites authors from across academia and the professions to focus their attentions upon the work of a single literary writer. They tell us what it's like to care about an author, strive to recreate through specific examples imaginative versions of what those authors and works represent, and seek to share their effect upon the reader's own thinking and development. Other titles currently available in the My Reading series include Samuel Beckett by Rosemary Bodenheimer, Honoré de Balzac by Peter Brooks, William James by Philip Davis, Charles Dickens by Annette Frederico, with more to follow in 2023. Now, enjoy our conversation on King Lear with Professor Arthur W. Frank. Hi, Art. How are you doing today? Just fine, and I hope it's a nice day in sunny California. It's sunny. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, we're in two separate places in California. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit cooler, I think, probably where I am in yeah. Northern California, and Corey's in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, but I wore a sweater anyways, because it's October, and it should be cold, but <laughs> just hoping. I was just going to say, soon you have to wear your Halloween costume. I know. Oh, I'm so excited for Halloween. I have to go out and get my costume. Art, do you know what you're going to be for Halloween? Well, I mean, obviously, it has to be a Shakespearean character for all three mm-hmm. of us. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just it just definitely does. Oh, and yeah. um, if it's a cold night, I definitely do not want to be Edgar. So, you know, it, it's, uh... <laughs> that's a very good call. That's a very I'm, good call. <laughs> I'm currently wearing what a friend of mine calls my Desdemona shirt uh, oh. because there's little strawberries all over it. Mm. So maybe that's I'll just go. It's lovely. Maybe I'll wear this. I have not put a lot of thought into my Halloween costume this year so far, but maybe I'll wear this and go as the handkerchief. That is an excellent idea. <laughs> that's that's really good. Thank you. So, Art, can you tell us what was your first experience with Shakespeare? Well, like an unfortunate number of people, uh, it had to do with those two most dreaded words, high school. And we took a, a field trip to what was then a really lovely sort of reconstructed Shakespearean theater in Stratford, Connecticut. And we saw a, a production of King Lear. And, you know, I have very few memories of it, except being sort of blown away by the storm scene and thinking, wow, if if ever there was an actor who could turn it up one more level on the amplifier, this guy's really done that. But I must say, like a lot of people who study Shakespeare in school, I came away impressed, but not really engaged. I thought, thought, okay, this is this is an extraordinary thing, but it just doesn't have much to do with me. And so I, I need to flash forward, gosh, more than 50 years to um, to going to the Globe in London and seeing a performance of Measure for Measure, which really was a revelation for me in terms of, of what I would call a more interactive Shakespeare. This was Shakespeare where, where the audience really felt a part of the of the production. And the actors were just so clearly speaking directly to the audience. I really felt like I was being personally addressed as opposed to the the experience in a traditional proscenium theater uh, where I'm sitting in the dark and the actors are up there performing for my anonymous self. So I, I would date, date it from those two contrasting performances. Uh, you have a slightly different background than some of the guests we've had on previously. Can you tell us more about what your fields of study have been, what you've worked on professionally, and then how do you find that they intersect with Shakespeare, specifically for your book about King Lear? For me, that's actually a more difficult question than it would be for a lot of people in academia, because I've I've worked across several different fields. I was trained as a sociologist and um, spent my career teaching sociology, but I veered off uh, around mid-career and started working in areas that are variously called bioethics or medical humanities or health humanities or narrative medicine. And what I was concerned with was the relationship between the experiences that people have of their own illnesses and how the medical profession is able to understand or unfortunately often not understand the sufferings involved in in those illnesses. And I was particularly 
interested in, in how people narrated illness experience and the kind of stories they were able to tell and what the limitation was of their ability to tell. And that actually leads into the present work on Shakespeare. Speaking of that work on Shakespeare, how did you get involved with Oxford's My Reading series? That was remarkably straightforward. One of the the editors, the lead editor of that series uh, is Philip Davis. And I had read and, and very much admired a book that Philip wrote called Reading for Life, in which he studies the way in which people read various works of literature. And we corresponded about this and how his interest in readers intersected with my interest in storytellers. And at that point, um, Philip was starting this series and he invited me to participate. And I was my usual kind of indefinite self. And finally he said, well, write about King Lear um, because I'd, I'd written him that a big issue in my life was the care of my father, who's now well past 100. So I would say that that Philip uh, very kindly recruited me for this. And the series was was just perfect for me because I'm not a professional Shakespearean. And the, the series uh, not only gives you permission, it invites you to write about whatever you, whatever the topic of the book is in a non-professional way. What in your work today is currently interesting to you? I want to get back to the book in a second, but before we dive in, what are you working on right now that is really interesting to you? One is, is a long-term interest in suffering, and especially the mutual suffering of healthcare providers and ill people. The second is how people gain a reflective grasp of their suffering. How are we able to think about our suffering and communicate it both to ourselves and to others? Because I think that suffering is, is eased in many ways. It finds a form of consolation in being communicated and understood. And the third thing are the kinds of stories that I would use the word archetypal to describe that manage to be wonderfully adaptable to different kinds of human experiences. And Shakespeare, for me, is one of the the few categories of stories, along with Bible stories, folk tales, that are able to uh, speak to human experience over multiple times and places. And so those those really come together in this work. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I would say if anybody writes about suffering, Shakespeare certainly does a lot of it. So he's a perfect topic for for this, you know. Every Shakespeare play, and especially the comedies. Mm. I mean, there's there's an mm-hmm. enormous amount of suffering. We were working on Twelfth Night two plays ago, and it's filled with so much suffering and grieving. And it's one of the comedies where there's so much laughter involved in a performance. But at the heart of it is the death of parents, the death of a sibling. And Shakespeare weaves both of those in so well, in my oh, eyes. You can do the Malvolio prison scene really darkly. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen it done where it was pretty scary. Mm. And Malvolio's exit line is can be pretty scary depending yeah. on how you play it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when describing your book as I've been reading it to other people who are asking me, what are you reading? I've said it's kind of like having a one-on-one book club with you. Yeah. And you center the book around a concept you describe as vulnerable reading. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what vulnerable reading is? I would really like to, but first let me just back up and say that I love your description of it being a one-on-one book club. And part of the background of the book is that it's very much a COVID book. I started seriously writing it just when we got home, and I guess that was March of 2020, and the lockdown really began, and I finished it just as things were opening up again and air travel was resuming. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's entirely a COVID book. And one reason it takes the form it did is that it, it wasn't possible to get out a great deal and exchange ideas and, and, and just be with people around. I, I was in several sort of reading groups on Shakespeare and those came to an end with COVID. Mm. So it's, it's a, uh, the, the book has, I think, a certain kind of self-enclosure of that lockdown period. 
and that all fits vulnerable reading. We read from any number of perspectives, but we always read from some perspective. And the perspective may be simply wanting entertainment. The perspective may be needing instructions on how to perform a task. The perspective that interests me is someone whose life has reached a point at which they're in in some kind of imminent threat. And they're reading to find some combination of consolation and guidance. They're reading with, with a purpose of hoping the book can somehow help them. It's really easier, though, to suggest a specific vulnerable reader. And I would propose as my first original vulnerable reader, Elizabeth I, Shakespeare's Queen Elizabeth. I don't know on your podcast if yet you've told the story of the Essex Rebellion, if that's figured in. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. We haven't deep dived, but we've definitely brought it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's this curious moment late in Elizabeth's reign um, when one of her courtiers, who's been a court favorite, the Earl of Essex, believes he's been mistreated. And that's kind of endemic to being a court favorite is that sooner or later you're going to think that you've been mistreated. And he's he thinks that Elizabeth is vulnerable and he's the candidate to replace her, which is probably extraordinary hubris on his part. But unfortunately, <laughs> nobody ever wrote the tragedy of the Earl of Essex, which no. they, they could have. Yeah. In the course of all this, Essex commissioned Shakespeare's company, then still the Lord Chamberlain's men, to put on a performance of Richard II, which Essex hoped would rally his troops because it's, of course, about a a somewhat deficient king being usurped by a better candidate for kingship, uh, Henry Bolingbroke. When Elizabeth heard about this, she is reported to have said, don't you see, I am Richard II. Now that's vulnerable reading. We have this, this woman of what was then old age, somewhat uncertain on the throne, her succession uncertain, her former favorite rebelling against her. And She finds in the play Richard II the same companionship that Essex finds. Essex could easily have said and maybe did say, I am Henry Bolingbroke. Right. I am I am the one who will be able to take the throne. Elizabeth sees herself as the Richard who who has the memorable speech of let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. The difference is, of course, she doesn't die. Essex dies. Not this time, Henry. Plot twist, yeah. And so she she manages not to be Richard II. And vulnerable reading can have that that effect. You you may identify with a character and say, but not that far. I can also resist being who this character was and following their trajectory. But I think if we think of of Richard II as a as a reading for Elizabeth I and her her identification with that character at a time of of her own vulnerability, that gives us a handle on it. And from there, it's any individual reader in his or her life. Mm. And whether that vulnerability is financial or health or political, it's whatever problem is imminent in your health, in your life. And you're looking for reading to show you some kind of way And the core of that way may be companionship. Elizabeth, in my imagination, both was afraid of being Richard II, but she may also have found a certain companionship in being Richard II. Mm -hmm. So that's my original, original vulnerable reader. And after that, I, I have to ask you, anyone listening, how might you be a vulnerable reader at what point in your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose a, a moment of uncertainty or change or searching would be a place where I could find myself becoming a vulnerable reader and either noticing a character and traits that I admire that I want to take on or things that I find as a warning sign that if I identify, maybe I shouldn't be this way. So very yeah. much. Yeah. You know, in my work on illness, I've heard and experienced myself a number of diagnosis stories of people particularly living in that gap of time when you recognize that there's something seriously wrong with your body 
but before you get a authorized medical diagnosis of that. That's what I mean by vulnerability, living in that space. Mm-hmm. And that's when you very well might turn to some reading um, because that living in that space involves a good deal of waiting. You know, it's waiting around. The complement of that is the waiting at the other end. After there's there's been a medical intervention, waiting to see if this is going to have the desired effect. That also is a period of of intense vulnerability that that I know in my work. But again, there there's so many different forms of trauma and distress in the world, and it could be any of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think too, it made me think of we talked about this book being a book that came out of COVID. And then our work with Twelfth Night was also during the time of COVID and like coming out of lockdown was when Corey pitched this show to me. And then going into reading Twelfth Night, having just the vulnerability of going through a plague and now seeing in Twelfth Night these characters who have also been going through a plague and going through grief and loss um, and Mm -hmm. having that vulnerability of seeing how they are dealing with it and how, yes, there's still laughter and there's still things to live for at the end but how they are also going, these characters are also going through recognizable pain and grief and situations that reflect Mm -hmm. our own lived experience. Yeah. And if I could stay with Twelfth Night for a minute, because um, you're getting me more and more interested in Twelfth Night, (laughs) the characters are stuck at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Life in Illyria is is really stuck. Um, You know, they're they're all sitting around in in their enclosures and they need something to jar them out of that. And and that happens to be Viola. But for those of us who, who aren't lucky enough to have Viola wash up into our lives, it also can be reading. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you're stuck and you need something, and I think one of the things that vulnerable reading can do for people is help them move through a period when, when they just seem to be stuck in a kind of uh, limbo existence. You may find in reading something that can get you going again. Yeah. So we'll leave Twelfth Night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, We're going to talk about King Lear. Yes. And speaking yeah. of King Lear, and I guess this is also tangential to vulnerable reading, you write about how you empathize with multiple characters in King Lear. Can you speak more on these characters and their roles in your life? Yeah. I don't know if if I would say that I empathize with them. In the work I do, the, the word empathy has gotten entirely compulsive attention as to what the problems are. One has to be careful. The term that that I use comes more from literary criticism. Uh, In what terms do I identify with a character? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it mean to say, I am so-and-so? One of the quotations, there are very few scholarly quotations in my book, as you realize, Mm -hmm. but one of the the people I really wanted to quote was the director, Dominic Drumgoul, whose work I really admire, who wrote in one of his books about Hamlet, and the the limits of identifying with Hamlet, a quotation that's that's just crucial to my approach to vulnerable reading. Hamlet, Drangul wrote, is not there to be the person we want him to be or to mollify our contemporary concerns. He is there to be Hamlet. That expresses the danger of vulnerable reading, which is a kind of empathy that that makes the character into a, just a projection of ourselves. And that's mm-hmm. the danger of empathy, is that we're, we're really not seeing the other person. We're not, in Drum Gould's terms, letting the other person be other than we mm-hmm. are. We're, we're saying, oh, I know just how you feel, which is to project my feelings onto the other person. Mm-hmm. So the problem with characters is how do you let them be who they are? How do you let Lear be Lear? How do you let Edgar be Edgar? How do you let Goneril and Reagan be mm-hmm. who they are? And it, at the very worst, <laughs> at the bottom of the barrel, how do you let Cornwall be who he is? And where do you draw the limits of who you have what kind of relationship with? I don't really want to hang out with Cornwall. Um, yeah. He's where I draw <laughs> the line. And it's, it's important in life to have a place we draw the line. And Shakespeare will often give us that. Although Cornwall is, is one of the most unredeemably Black characters in, in all of Shakespeare. I mean, it's hard to find much good. We can even find ways to sympathize with Iago in some ways a little more than, 
than we can with Cornwall. Being Cornwall seems to just be a, an image of, of unmitigated evil. But what I'm looking for is how is it that this character came to be the way they are? How do they perceive their vulnerability being the way they are? And how do they respond to their vulnerability? And in seeing how different characters assess and respond to their vulnerabilities, I can ask myself in new ways, in ways that are perhaps a little bit unstuck, what my vulnerabilities are and how I'm responding to them. And perhaps I can find different ways of imagining responding to my own vulnerabilities. But then it's also really important to me that I can't predict with good companions how they're going to come back into my life and what they're going to look like when they come back. That, again, is granting them their own independence. So it's doing the things that, that at least when I was in literature classes many decades ago, we were taught not to do. One is to treat a character as if they're a real person. I definitely treat characters as if they're very real persons. And second of all, worrying about identifying with a character. And I definitely think of all the different ways of gradations in which we identify and yet at the same time uh, maintain a distance from various characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because when Elise and I were talking about King Lear, we talk about the play through multiple lenses. So on some episodes, we're sympathizing or understanding or identifying more with Lear because of looking at it through ageism versus, you know, looking at the sexism and we feel less, you know, sympathetic to Lear in that regard. So I think that like, it's important to, yeah, as you look at characters, understand their complexities and not box them in to one portion of how they could be seen because they're written so complexly in, in Shakespeare. And then on the reverse, I had this really interesting moment where I realized I never think about Cornwall because he's not, redeemable in any way. He's just this, you know, husband who is evil in heart. And it was just an interesting thing because we talk about uh, relating to, or at least identifying why is Edmund the way he is. And that vulnerable reading is so valuable, especially when you put on the play of King Lear, you know, it's, it's a valuable act. So I just wanted to share that that was something that I found very wonderful to read you do from top to bottom for the play. Yeah. I mean, I, I've learned a tremendous amount. I've probably learned more from reading actors and directors than from reading literary critics, because actors and directors, as I've found, have to tell themselves stories about this character. Uh, they have to fill in aspects of the character that go beyond what you can learn from the strict text mm. of the play. Mm -hmm. They have to fill this person out and, and make imaginative decisions about this person and, and his or her life. And in that, they're much more vulnerable readers. And that shouldn't be a surprise because to act is to make yourself vulnerable in a number of ways, including for Edgar to make yourself physically vulnerable playing this part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We recently did an episode on soliloquies and uh, mm -hmm. asides and really solo speech using uh, Marcus Nordland's study where he input everything into a database and analyzed it using computers. And he talks about how this text, unlike other literary styles, Shakespeare's plays are meant to be interpreted by a person in that role, the actor, the director, there's all these other elements that are involved in creating this full person. So thinking of characters as people, that was their intended purpose was to be seen as full, complex people whereas you know a novel vulnerable reading for a novel may be a little bit different or that you know thing we're taught in English class of not identifying with them as we're trying to see them as people these are specifically meant to have that work done of why are they doing this um why are they saying this why that action how does someone navigate that that's kind of big question there that vulnerable reading allows us to do when we read these plays yeah and it's very interesting in King Lear that, to me at least, the best soliloquies go to Edmund. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, um, yeah. Just as in The Tempest, the most lyrical passages arguably go to Caliban. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you just with Shakespeare, that's part of the the, the nuance of it and the the way in which he mixes the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. Moving from characters to moments and themes. Throughout your book, you connect moments and themes in King Lear to modern day reflections from your own life. Considering the personal nature and the vulnerability required in vulnerable reading, were any of these stories easier or more difficult to include in the book? Oh, boy. For a long time, uh, I've talked about my own illness experiences. The major shift in my career was around 1990 when I wrote a memoir of several years of critical and chronic illness that I'd lived through. And I, I got a lot of speaking invitations from that. And it was it was very difficult at first, telling those highly personal stories in front of audiences, but you get used to it. And so really writing about these things in the privacy of my own study and just putting them on the page as opposed to speaking them to an audience right there in front of me uh, was comparatively easy. The difficult parts uh, were that a lot of these stories involve my father, whose house I'm in right now. He's in the other room. <laughs> He's going to have his 103rd birthday uh, next month, Lord willing. <laughs> and it's the, the ethical problem of to what extent is a story my story to tell and to what extent is it is it someone else's story and it, it's just not mine and I, I really shouldn't tell it. I hope I came down on the side of telling the stories in a way that shows that they're my story that involve him, but it's my story. I've read the book to him aloud. <laughs> I think he recognizes that I wrote it, uh, but sometimes he says things that he'll then talk about the guy who wrote it. <laughs> I'll say, well, actually, I, I kind of am that guy. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he, hasn't, uh, he hasn't expressed any problem. But then he also may not recognize himself in the character who I'm writing about. And to me, there's something actually quite profound there about the nature of selfhood. And when we do recognize characters as us or not us, because we're, we're represented in all sorts of ways throughout our lives. And in some of those representations, we see ourselves. And in others, we just don't see ourselves. So your, your question has depths that are truly existential. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I know for me, one thing that particularly stood out to me was having done this, the research that we've done on King Lear and old age, specifically my life story involves caring for a family member at the end of their life who had memory loss. And I personally had never connected the idea of the outward projections of self that we have throughout our lives. So Lear's reason, not the need about the the retinue. You have this really incredible dissection of his need for these 100 nights and yeah. his need to see himself as still this commander, even if it's kind of in play, you know, he doesn't <laughs> actually have command. He's given that up, but he still needs to hold on to that. Or um, you also talk about your books, which I look around my house and I'm like, well, that's going to be the thing that someone's going to have to deal with <laughs> at some point. Um, and Lear's need to maintain his retinue also being connected to this milestone that I've seen, not just myself and my family go through of telling someone we love that they can no longer drive. Um, But I've seen other people go through that with their parents and grandparents and the difficult conversation of specifically that generation losing the ability to drive. And it made me think of like, what will that be for my generation? At what age are we going to stop being allowed to go on social media? (laughs) 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 Um, You know, um, Or my parents' generation who have, you know, cared for their parents. What is it to, you know, take those books out of the house? Or we're going to start looking through our life and start, you know, getting rid of things so that our children don't have to do that. I then thought, well, what is my generation's thing going to be that we are going to have either need to be taken from us or need to let go of? What is that thing going to be that makes us feel like we are shedding self? 
That's a big existential question. Um, (laughs) But that's something that I had never thought of with King Lear. And so thank you for that. And yeah, what is this need that we have as humans to have evidence of a life as we age? Mm -hmm. Um, Was a question that I now want to go back and read King Lear and have in the in mind. Yeah, in the forefront of my mind in my next reading of King Lear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it translates then into production decisions. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, one of the big decisions that I, I think a director has to make is how justified Goneril is early on um, when she talks about the night being riotous mm-hmm. um, in um, the monumental production of the, the, the late Peter Brook. The nights really are riotous. I mean, they, they bust the place up. You know, how far do you you show that Gunnell's not unjustified at this point? And that's fascinating tension. Mm-hmm. And then it, for me, is, as you realize, it contrasts with Edgar and this, this line that I'm so affixed to uh, when Edgar realizes he has to disguise himself and become a bedlam beggar who he calls poor Tom. And there's his darkest line, Edgar, I nothing am. When for our survival do we have to give up some very substantial part of what our identity has been? But it's a choice between holding on to that and, and living. And Edgar represents that choice for me really in the, the absolutely starkest terms. As I say, one of the big differences is that Edgar's a lot younger than King Lear. And I, I think when you're younger, it's easier to give up more because you have a faith in, in a future in which you may get these things back again. As you're older, I think giving things up becomes proportionally more difficult because there's more self invested in them. <laughs> there's so many half broken down things in my father's house that he would just find it impossible to get rid of mm-hmm. because they're as objects they remind him of his life and who he's been and who he's been with. And as all the people who he he knew and loved have really disappeared of his generation, Mm -hmm. um, he's the last one of any of the siblings and their spouses. What remains are, it's very sad to say, often pieces of furniture, lamps, tables, photographs, And that really goes back to a theory of identity from William James, who understood our identity as as always projecting outward, very much in material forms, Mm -hmm. our clothing, our stuff, our houses. Mm -hmm. These are all aspects of how we we materialize a notion of self and Mm -hmm. hold on to it and keep it stable. And Lear... King Lear is a great play because we watch different characters have all of that stripped away from them. Uh, Lear has it stripped away. Gloucester has it stripped away. Edgar has it stripped away. And we, we see how they do with that. Mm-hmm. And we, we then can think about how we'll do with it um, when aspects of, of our lives and identities are stripped away. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating, too, because you compare... Lear and Edgar in some ways because one is the king who is his way out and at the end of the play Edgar is going to become the next king and I've never really in my readings thought of them as relational I mean they they spend time together as poor Tom and Lear but I always view that or I've typically read that in relation to thinking about madness insanity Mm -hmm. but as far as like what does that mean for the future of Britain where you have Lear who says, you bring up this line, I have taken too little care of this. And, you know, he sees what has happened in his kingdom. But then you have Edgar who has stripped everything. And he then is a possibly an optimistic future for the country that has just seen so much chaos. We hope so. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other singular thing that was going on while I was writing this book, the sort of fulcrum event, um, was January 6th and the assault on the Capitol. And it was it was very difficult for me not to bring that directly into the book in the, the great line that, that Albany has at the end when he refers to the Gord State. I mean, I was, I was working on, I think I'd finished a first version by then and working on revisions, and, and there was the American state being Gord, you know, right on television. 
And uh, that really underscored for me what a, an intensely political play this is. And I, I try to keep, it's not my main focus, but I try to keep remembering it throughout the book. And I, I think part of the, the reason something like this deserves words like genius is the way in which the familial and the state are part and parcel of each other mm-hmm. and, and simply inseparable from mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. In your chapters on your vulnerable reading of King Lear, you refer to the significance that letters play in the plot. Also something that I never tracked for myself that Hmm. we have this letter forged by Edmund that really is an inciting incident that, you know, pushes Edgar into poor Tom. And then the one that reveals Edmund and Goneril's plan to kill Albany that really helps turn the events towards its conclusion. To the end of your book, you turn again to letters. And can you Mm. tell us about how you decided to include letters to the characters of King Lear? Yeah, and I should credit the actor and and language scholar Ben Crystal uh, in his little book on King Lear. I think that he counts up something like 17 different messages, letters, texts Mm -hmm. of various kinds, the map that Lear is, is drawn up that occur throughout this book. It's, it's the most letter writing play <laughs> in, uh, in, in any of them. And I just, I just concentrate on, on a few of these. The reason I turn to letters in the last chapter is the question of how do I get characters to talk back to me? And that, that's why it's, it's more than empathizing with characters. Empathizing with characters is still something I do. I want companions who won't just be objects of my empathic identification, but who will will challenge me the way I hope real people in my life challenge me, who will say things that are unexpected, who will cause me to confront my life in ways that I wouldn't otherwise have done. So how do you how do you get characters to talk back to you? Well, I think the beginning is you have to learn to talk to them. And I make the last chapter letters to these various characters in order to put myself in a direct relationship to them. What Martin Buber would have called an I-thou relationship, um, where the character is another whom I address. And in a letter, we're inviting the other person to write back to us. We're, We're inviting what will become a a dialogue of views. I think the best way to invite someone to to write back is to write them. And that's the core of the the last chapter is that that I want to to sum up with all of these characters. And there are a lot of characters in King Lear. It's one of the most character-rich plays in the, the Shakespearean canon in terms of characters who've got enough to them that you really have something to say to them at the end. You know, they've they've established themselves in ways that they are addressable. I really wanted to force myself to find language to speak directly to them. And I then wanted to provide a model for readers of how you begin to speak more directly, either to characters as you pursue vulnerable reading, or perhaps to real persons in your life as you encounter those people. Because in my, my more sociological work, one of my main interests is, is how do we have possibilities of dialogue, which is quite simply, how do we talk to each other in the fullest openness of what the other has to say? And that, again, is, is such a significant political problem right now, as well as a interpersonal problem. Partisanship is the opposite of dialogue. Partisanship is being already closed as soon as you identify the other coming from that position and you just shut down immediately. And I see partisanship at both ends of the political continuum. And dialogue is a perpetual attitude of of openness. And this is really the last thing I'd say about the letters. Dialogue is committed to the idea that you can never say a last word about someone else. You can never sum that person up except Cornwall, mm-hmm. <laughs> Cornwall outside the perimeters. 
of dialogue. But except for Cornwall, Mm -hmm. all of these people have got other parts of their story. And I can I can imagine them in in some afterlife or return to life, coming back and acting a bit differently. And fortunately, we've got any number of post Shakespeare rewritings, the Hogarth Shakespeare series, for example, of, of novels, uh, in which characters are brought back, and are allowed to act in quite different ways. The way Goneril and Regan are, are reconfigured in James Myla Thousand Acres. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the extension of vulnerable reading. The extraordinary, I would I want to use the word mystery, of what we're talking about when we talk about this thing in scare quotes or italics or something, Shakespeare. You know, I mean, there's, there's Shakespeare insofar as we're pretty sure there was this person who lived when and where he did, and, and he signed a whole bunch of legal documents and seems to have bought this house <laughs> and had children. And then there's, there's Shakespeare that for me is is an ongoing presence. And they, the, the letter I didn't include, because I, I was, it was just too much for me, was the letter to Shakespeare. Harriet Walter, the great Shakespearean actor, um, in her book, uh, Brutus and Other Heroes, in which she talks about being topic that greatest concern to the two of you, being, being a woman playing Shakespeare and how Shakespeare treats women. She ends up with a wonderful letter to Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and uh, hers is just so fantastic that I couldn't I couldn't write one. She just blew me right out of the water. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that too because something you wrote was that you found solace of thinking of his work continuing to be written, or even better, continuing to write itself. His hand invisible but still moving, and that's what Elise and I try to do on this podcast. Is if we're still connecting with Shakespeare and the words and the characters and these plays. How do we tell it today? What is important yeah. today that, you know, we can expand upon and make him for us? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, and that's absolutely crucial. As long as you also remember what John Gould says, that just as Hamlet is not there to be the person we want him mm-hmm. to be and to mollify our contemporary concerns, mm-hmm. Shakespeare also. I think a lot of the, the solace of Shakespeare is what I call going elsewhere. And that's really the opposite of what you're saying. That's mm. forcing ourselves to go back and try to experience Shakespeare so far as we can recover it on his terms. Mm-hmm. And we never can. And there's, there's a great deal we, we don't know. But it's, it's really important not to be too quick to adapt it, to force it to be what it is itself yeah, and yeah. and that means confronting the parts of the plays that are really difficult for us to confront nowadays the parts we want to edit out and for me in in King Lear um, that's not the blinding of Gloucester it's Shakespeare's horrific misogyny in the curses he brings down on Goneril and Reagan mm-hmm. which you know I, I had to cut off how much I can quote them in the book they're just too ugly but we have to see that as part of the play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to see it as part of Lear and who he is. We can't just turn Lear into a, into a hero of anti-ageism. We, we right. also have to deal with the fact that he is absolutely a world-class exemplar of sexism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what Shakespeare brings us up against. And I think it's why in the current milieu, we really need Shakespeare because more than any other actor, he, he forces us to see life all the way across the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. We talk a lot on this podcast of occupying that space that I think you're getting at of it not being frozen in time, but also not what I call bumper sticker Shakespeare, trying to make it something it's not by slapping right. a concept or a message on it that's not actually in there. Um, and really the text, yeah. Uh, engaging with the text as a living document of this meant something then what does it mean for us today and how can we not ignore the problems that are in here, but make sure that moving forward, that if we're producing it or uh, making a podcast on it, we're acknowledging the harm, the sexism, the problems that are in there um, while also going, but there's also this other stuff in there that continues to make it valid or, you know, these things also haven't gone away. Sexism hasn't mm-hmm. gone away. So how do we use King Lear to explore what sexism looks like today? Um yeah. 
we try to occupy that ground in the middle. Yeah. Where I think there's a lot of room to play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what Shakespeare lets us do, isn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, just if we talk about an actor playing Shakespeare, as readers, we play Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And for me, we crucially play Shakespeare after we close the book. And I think an enormous amount of vulnerable reading is after you've already closed the book. It's not so much while you're reading, uh, it's how you continue to live the reading after the book is back on the shelf, but still very much in your head and Mm -hmm. your head is in it. Yeah, what you take away. Yeah, and how it takes you away. Mm -hmm. I like that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, and I also think that that is a great final thought to leave people with. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From King Lear, Act 5, Scene 3, spoken by Lear. And take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. Thank you so much, Art. Yes, thank you.